Welcome to a special episode of the Crossway Podcast. This month, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the English Standard Version, first published by Crossway in 2001. To help mark this milestone, this month we're releasing a number of fascinating interviews focused on the ESV and Bible translation. Today, we're pleased to share the first of these interviews, a conversation with ESV Translation Oversight Committee member, Dr. Paul House. In this interview, Paul answers questions listeners submitted about the ESV, questions related to how translators do their work, the translation philosophy of the ESV, tricky passages, and a lot more. In addition to his work on the ESV Translation Oversight Committee, Paul serves as Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. He's also a past president of the Evangelical Theological Society, an active member of the Society of Biblical Literature, and the general editor of the new ESV Concise Study Bible. Let's get started. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. So you serve on the Translation Oversight Committee for the ESV. At first, I wonder if you could just start off by telling us what the TOC, for short, does. Yes, the Translation Oversight Committee is uh, the group of people who make final decisions on the text of the ESV. And that group consists of these different parts. Um, I believe it started with 12 people. We may be as many as 15 now. Mm. Um we had a recent death, so it's, I, I forget the exact number, but we have uh, Old and New Testament experts, <clears throat> people who are uh, versed in biblical language, but their primary specialty as scholars is theology or church history. Uh, we also have uh, a literary expert, and then we also have uh, a pastoral uh, expert. So, because the translation is supposed to be able to be uh, used in public worship and for preaching. And so that person uh, on our committee uh, also knows Greek and Hebrew. Uh, but the main thing that he does is help us know how this will come across with a congregation. So that's the group. And when we meet, we handle uh, issues related to the translation text and having always having done a lot of work beforehand mm. uh, so that we're supposed to be informed. And then we discuss and come to uh, as much agreement as we can. Uh, we do vote on those um, things. Um, starting about 2010, I believe, I'm the moderator of that group. So the most difficult thing is I have to stay alert and mm. engaged in every issue. Uh, my <laughs> mind doesn't, I can't wander too much. Uh, but so I'm supposed to guide the discussion and the huh. motions and help the body know that it's coming to a, a conclusion that it can stand by. Yeah. I want to go uh, dig into more of what your role looks like in particular, and then also uh, kind of the the actual day-to-day -day work of the committee um, but before we get into that, you said that there's different kinds of people on the committee, all of them Bible scholars in their own right, all of them able to engage with the text uh, in the original languages, but nevertheless, maybe different emphases or backgrounds that might be a little bit surprising to somebody who, who would think, oh, a translation committee would just be all just looking at, you know, the grammar and, and just, just focused on that kind of stuff. What's behind the idea of having 
theologians and, and pastors and, and people who can kind of come with a variety of those perspectives. Yes, all those things are aspects of a translation uh, and of literature. If, if people stop and think, they will know that there's a great deal involved in a book like the Bible that was written over long periods of time in, in different historical settings, uh, in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic uh, tongues, uh, that have also, so that, that's one side of it. The other side of it is, uh, this is an English Bible translation. I keep emphasizing English Bible because I, I don't claim any expertise in how you would translate from Hebrew to Korean or Hebrew to Chinese. Mm. So I'm just talking about English Bible translation. Uh, so then you have to, you have to know something about English. And it helps to know how, why this word that's in the scripture is there because sometimes you'll come to a word that makes you you're, you you wonder why this word not another, and then you find out well it's been in, it's been in the Bible for 500 years in the English Bible, and so you see that there's a history to the word, and then you have to make the decision as to whether uh, it matters to change it, um, and and you would change it for better precision, clarity, theological understanding. Uh, also, it, it's important. Uh, that we had different denominations uh, in on the committee. Mm. So, um, well, first of all, we'll talk about nationalities. There were Americans, citizens of the UK, Australian. Um, there were Anglicans, and Baptists, uh, Presbyterians, uh, Free Church uh, members, uh, and so forth. Mm. So... That's helpful because this word might be heard in Australia with Baptists one way hmm. and heard another. So when you talk about, when you use a term like real presence uh, in, in a text, to an Anglican, that means one thing, and to a Pentecostal, it means another. Yeah. <laughs> and so you... You want to give the most precise language that is accurate, but you always have to ask yourself, is it misleading too? And so you need to be aware of those. You can't let the audience determine what you're going to say. Mm. We'll probably talk about that later. But you also don't want to be unnecessarily obscure, vague, or misleading mm. um, with the text. So it's helpful to have these different viewpoints and to hear it from the original authors and the original languages coming across into the language that that we know mm. and live with. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned that since 2010, you have served as a moderator for the Translation Oversight Committee. Uh, when did you actually start on the committee itself and what was your role initially? Uh, yes, I was first approached about being on the committee. Uh, in the fall of 1998, and um, I was at a organizational meeting in November 1998. In January 1999, um, I was teaching in Louisville, Kentucky, and Lane Dennis was in Louisville because we were um, working on launching Dr. Carl Henry's God Revelation Authority that mm. Crossway still publishes. And it was at that time, um, so uh, about January 15th or so that Lane asked me to be part of the committee. Our first meeting 
was in Cambridge that summer. And from that point on, I've been a member of the committee. And I think of, I know I've attended every major meeting. I think I've missed one day meeting or something mm. like that. Do you remember your initial early thoughts uh, when you when you started to work on the translation? Was there, what was the, the sense there uh, in the room in those early days? Yeah, the first meeting, um, I've, I look back on it now and realize that um, the most important thing we did, and when I say first meeting, it was three weeks, as I recall, um, six days a week. Wow. Uh, well, we only worked till noon on Saturdays. So, so that was your that was your half day off. Yeah, it's reminded me very much of growing up on a farm. Uh-huh. Um, and so, what we really learned then, as we we worked through Genesis and Romans, as I recall, was how to work as a committee, what was going to work and what wasn't, and what we could move quickly on and what we could not. So it was a, it, it was partly the dynamics of the group, partly the text you were dealing with, partly the issues you were going to have to handle. Um, so uh, at the very start, though, I think we thought what every translation committee thinks, this is easier than it will be mm. because you, you, you have grown up reading the Bible, where a lot of us had, or had become committed Christians at some point and reading the Bible. Most of us have been teaching the Bible. Uh, all of us had been at one level or another. And we had done our biblical languages and some of us had taught Greek and Hebrew and and so forth. And so we had graded countless translation exercises. And you also think, well, we're all evangelicals. We all believe scriptures without error. We believe it's given by God for, for our protection and correction and growth. And then you start finding out what we've already said, that we need these various uh, voices and expertise within these commitments. And so um, we started finding out that what sounded clear and helpful to one ear would sound different in a different country, the different denomination. And then you work hard hmm. to, to figure out the best way to be true to the original language and the original forms of the text, and then to uh, find as close an equivalent as you can in the English language. Mm. You mentioned before we started our interview that uh, you were the youngest member of the Translation Oversight Committee. Do you remember feeling any, any nerves about being a part of something like this? Was there a, was there anything like that for you? Uh, well, sure. I mean, I was the youngest, but, you know, I was 40. Mm. And I had been teaching for about 12 years. I'd been in ministry longer than that. So I guess I felt I felt able to contribute at the time. Mm. But to be in a, in a committee with Gordon Winham, and as an Old Testament scholar who's, I know, a Crossway author, but was already established and respected and, and written important commentaries in the Pentateuch, uh, I didn't know Jack Collins, who was also in the Old Testament committee, and he is. Uh, but Jack's a walking lexicon. He carries it <laughs> in his head, and he, he has an amazing mind. So uh, I quickly came to respect him for his comprehensive knowledge. And I can go on like this. So I thought, yes, I'm going to learn a lot, mm. and I was going to be able to make a 
a contribution. I had worked as a consultant on two or three other translations. So I at least had some experience. Yeah. But let me just say this. So, so by now, 20 years on, <laughs> um, having worked on these things, thought about translation, worked on the committee, read the ESV nearly every day, trying to figure out how to do it, gone back and read um, Tyndale, the Geneva Bible, the King James, all the predecessors, mm. um, realizing that I have a PhD in Old Testament with a minor in New Testament. I have a master's degree in English. I have 20 some years now of experience as a translator. And on my best days, I can almost see the figure of what I would like to be mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and what I, what I need to be. Yeah. Because it's such an awesome responsibility. There's, there's nothing wasted in your background um, as far as being useful to the work. Yeah, yeah. So we recently asked listeners uh, to submit some questions about the ESV as a translation. And we've received a lot of questions, many of them related to these early days, the genesis of the translation itself. Um, so as you think back to that in those early conversations with Lane and others on the, the oversight committee, what was the the motivating factor behind the decision to develop a new translation. Obviously, at that time, there were existing English translations uh, in print. So do you remember why, why, that was, uh, why that was the project was started to begin with? Yes, and, and I know it goes back to the 1970s and before um, with, with Lane and with, and with Lee Riken and Jim Packer and coming on people like myself. Whereas evangelicals are committed to the truthfulness of Scripture and wanted people to love the Scriptures and know it. And yes, there were lots of translations coming out, but most of them are either in the field of paraphrase, which is one type, or dynamic equivalent like the NIV. In the tradition of the Tyndale Geneva Bible, King James, American Standard, Revised Standard Version, New American Standard, there was not a updated, um, available. Sometimes you, you like this translation and you try to buy pew Bibles and you can't find mm. a way to do it. So it's a very practical consideration. There oh, oh very, sure. very much. There are, there are just so many practical considerations we could, that are a whole other set that would surprise people. Um, and so something that was useful for preaching for people who did know Hebrew and Greek and who didn't, that was going to have durability of language so that though we had the web now, we were going to have to change this every other day to reprint it for the people. That would have respect for people's intelligence and their desire to, to memorize and live by the Word of God. And so... It was for me, and I think for, for several of the others, the idea was, can we do this type of translation, a formal equivalent translation that will be true to the text and not and be word de deal with the words and the forms of language, not just say what's the general thought. Mm. To be from the author to the text to the reader, not from the reader back to the translator, but that would then be able to make an impact over a long period of time. You mentioned a few minutes ago the idea of formal equivalence, and that kind of gets to the issue of translation philosophy. 
And that uh, we got some questions about that. One listener in Middleton, Indiana asked, you know, what was the that philosophy behind the ESV translation? How would you unpack the philosophy? Yeah, I think I don't know what the average person thinks when they pick up a translation. I rather think they believe that all the translations are done the same way and some people are more skilled than others mm. at, at, at giving things people can understand. So really three basic types of translation. The formal equivalence tries to give you as close as possible the forms of the language. That is, if it's one word, we give you one word. If it's a prepositional phrase, we give you the phrase. If it's a, a long sentence, we give you a long sentence. And we want the words to convey the meaning to the audience. So we want to be aware of that. But it, the text comes first. And a dynamic equivalent uh, translation like the NIV uh, and several others, I think New English Bible, and I could name some more, uh, made by people who love the Word of God, love God. They're, the idea, though, is that we will give you thought by thought and we'll take away what seem to be barriers. But then the, que the question then becomes, um, when the audience changes, how much are you willing to change for that purpose? Um, but also, um, if you shorten sentences, does that change how, how people would understand what's going on? When you leave out connecting phrases, the Good News Bible was aimed at about a 10-year-old level when it first came out. And mm. so it, lots of short sentences took out connecting phrases, that sort of thing. Um, and for that type of audience, uh, you know, I suppose... It would, it would do it. And those, those, those translations came along at a time when people were changing from the King James because of perceived difficulty of reading it. Mm. And so they, they helped many people. But that's a different translation philosophy. The new, uh, uh, a paraphrase could be we take, in effect, uh, you take the English Bible and you give as brief of, 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 a, of an interpretation of a commentary as you can, mm. trying to help people understand. Um, it, all translations are at least minimal interpretation so that the, the translator is in the process. But I think the thought-for-thought thought approach increases the number of times the translator is in, is in the picture. Mm. The paraphrase of necessity puts that translator there, that, that, that person there all the time. And you're very dependent on. So I, I think um, pastors who don't have biblical languages really need a formal equivalent Bible because they, they need to be as close to the original as they can in English. Um, I think readers who, who want to be precise and learn really need that kind of translation. Mm. So um, that seemed to be the stream that was dying out at the time. So some of us want to preserve and bring that forward mm. at a time when other types were going on. So would you say that it's, it's safe to then summarize that the goal of the translators for the ESV was to do as little interpretation as possible, to inject as little of their own, their own views of the text, their own applications of the text into the translation itself, but really just... Uh, uh, be as I think the word is often thrown out transparent to the original yeah. text as possible. Yes, and I think um, 
humility requires to say that is our goal. And we are better sometimes than others. And I think the New American Standard translators would say the same thing. That's what they were trying to do. Uh, King James and so forth, that whole tradition. And I don't think these others are trying to insert themselves in their influence. I'm just saying the method itself, once you choose that, is going to determine how a lot of things go. Mm-hmm. So I would say to any reader, whatever your work is, I would need you to explain to me what are the what are the underlying principles to being in marketing, to being an educator, to being uh, in business that you're in, and then you tell me how that method then works itself out. And are there different methods in your industry that that people do? It's the same thing in, in Bible translation. Mm-hmm. And so we were trying to pick the one that did the most for the most people. Yeah. What would you say would constitute a misunderstanding of the translation philosophy of the ESV? Um, Through the years, I've had the chance to talk to people about the translation. I've also, 2003, did a a tour with a Bible society um, in Asia, several countries. And also been to India and Australia, and I've talked to people. Um, the The most common misunderstanding is when they hear the term essentially literal, that it's going to be more like an interlinear. It's just going to be the words in whatever order, mm. and that you're go- it's going to be very choppy and that sort of thing. That's why I, I prefer formal equivalents because the forms of the language are trying to give it in, in an equivalent fashion, and. Greek and Hebrew actually translate pretty well into English in this manner. Mm. The, the original English Bible translator, William Tyndale, for instance, said it's a whole lot easier to translate from Greek to English and Hebrew to English than it is from Greek or Hebrew to Latin. Mm. Interesting. So, it does matter which language you're working with. Yeah. So again, that's why I, I, don't, I don't claim to know about all these others, hmm. but I am I am saying for English purposes, the very original translator said, "Oh, this is," and I think he's, I think he's right. And Hebrew is actually a simpler, simpler than Greek once you're used to looking at it, once you learn it. So once, once you're used to the the direction of the writing well, going, yeah. One, way. Yes, it's 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 counterintuitive in so many ways. But once you learn it, you see, well, it's very, it's a very straightforward grammar. Hmm. So Tyndall was actually delighted when he went to start translating the Old Testament because he, William Tyndall was the first person to ever translate the Bible from Greek to English, the whole thing. He was the first person to translate any type of Hebrew into English and have it published, Hmm. period, any. (laughs) So, so. When he got to the Old Testament, he said he was just so delighted that it worked so much better in English than he had found working Greek to English. So as opposed to essentially literal, so that if 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 uh if you need to move the subject to where it fits in English, but it's still the subject of the sentence, I don't make a new subject. If it's a command, it's still a command, I don't turn it into into a participle or a noun or something else. Mm. So that's part of it. But I think a lot of people are, think, uh, well, just remember, if you translated Spanish, 
Um, let's see, how does, how does Spanish do this? Um, we say it's a good day. Uh, they would say it's uh, a a day, a good one, you know. So, so it's... Yeah. You, you make that switch any time. Yeah. In any language. So in saying essentially literal, that doesn't mean that we're not uh, conforming to the, the kind of common rules of English. Right. That's yeah. a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, so let's turn to the translation work itself. A lot of people were, I think, curious... Uh, to, to understand a little bit better, what is the, the day in the life of a translator actually like? So uh, you've kind of given us a little bit of a picture into that, but what was actually happening at those translation meetings? Was most of the work happening in those meetings together or was a lot of work being done outside of that and then you're coming together to discuss? There was tons of, there were lots and lots and lots of work done. Now, um, we were among the first translations, if not the first, to benefit from electronic mail. So um, we could send things back and forth to one another. Mm. That can be both a blessing and a curse. As, as, anybody, <laughs> as everybody knows about electronic mail, but again, I'm, I'm 63 years old, so sometimes I have to explain what U.S. mail is to some yeah. people. And, and for the younger listeners, electronic mail is email. Right, email. Yeah. So that I could send you in an instant uh, just so the younger people can understand us old people, we still find that to be fascinating because it, what used to take three, four, five days, week, <laughs> two weeks to another continent can now be done. And the idea that I could call Australia and talk to a friend for a penny a minute when we used to have to pay 40 bucks to talk to the yeah. East Coast is astounding <laughs> to us. But what that meant was we could we could do a lot of work individually and in small groups before we ever got to the meeting. So I would say from the time we started in 1999 to 2001, when the ESV was first published, I, I'm certain that we spent 75 to 100 days together face-to-face -face in wow. person in, in hard-working sessions. But before that, for instance, I was a lead reviewer for the historical books of the Old Testament. So I would have worked with... Uh, the Old Testament Committee, which was I already mentioned Jack Collins and, Win and Gordon Whittem, we would have had a book expert. So for Esther, Ruth, and so, et cetera, we would have had a person who was an expert outside of our committee who was looking over the work and making suggestions. And we would have worked together to come up with what we would propose then to the whole committee, knowing that changes could be made in the room, but we weren't doing everything from scratch. Mm, yeah. And so that was also true of the other parts of the Bible. And it's anybody would know some are more complicated than others. Mm. Anything stand out that maybe was harder to work through than you were originally thinking it would be? Um, in summer of 2000, would have been August or so, we're meeting in a wonderful place in England. And to get some work done, I was working separately from the whole committee. And I was working on the book of Jeremiah, which is 5% of the whole Bible. That's total. Wow. And so I was working on that in the morning. I came together to lunch with the committee. We almost always just worked 100% together, but I was asked to do this. It's an unusual thing. And I said, what did you get done this morning? Four hours. Philippians 1, 1 to 3, I think they said. <laughs> Well, 
that's the bit where you have all the church officers. And that was a point at which uh, the Anglicans and the Baptists and the Presbyterians, <laughs> the free church people and all this sort of stuff, were trying to work out, elder deacons, so forth. It was fun work. A lot of times it was. Um, and, you know, uh, that was was kind of unexpected. I thought we we would just kind of stick with that. Uh, there were there were times too where you were trying to figure out the best way to to render a passage. So give you an example. Ephesians one three to fourteen is one sentence in Greek, and so even if everybody agreed, how do you put that whole thing together? <laughs> and so it was it was it was kind of interesting um as people do every now and then folks will have expertise uh and, and want to get that shown in the translation but um we would also then unexpectedly get caught up um oh we, we think we want to translate it this way and somebody, usually Jack Collins, would say, "Hang on, hang on, hang on." That changes seven other texts. Mm. He's gotten his. You said he's a walking lexicon. So yeah, so he said, "You know, it'd be, it'd be about like that, and not eight, not nine. And he said seven. This was not a. <laughs> this was not a guess. Or, you know, Bruce Winter, who is a, a Pauline expert and a, and a great New Testament historian, so he would say, "Well, well, that didn't work because that's that's not what was going on then." Mm. And so you would then have to say, because in our translation, we wanted to make sure we translate the same words and phrases and terms where they were in the same context and everything, the same way. English loves synonyms, mm. but Hebrew isn't committed to synonyms, neither is Greek really. So we wanted to make sure some of these words, so... Um, what does what's righteousness? Um, holy. We also then had some uh, tough phrases to try to figure out, um, so that we wouldn't mislead people, but try to give the nuance. Yeah. So, what's behind that that desire to, you know, use the same English word whenever the the, the same Greek word or Hebrew word is being used? Why not? Um, you know, why not? You know, because sometimes the meaning in the certain context that it's appearing in might might shift a little bit, have a little different flavor to it that we can kind of see there. Uh, why not allow that to influence the use of a synonym? Say? Where, where that's true, we do allow the influence. Hmm. But what I'm saying is in English, there is a, a, a reflex preference for a synonym, if you, if you know the language. Uh, in fact, uh, I was writing a letter by hand last night and I was making sure I wasn't using. Yeah. This, well, it's bad form to use the same It, it is bad form. form. So that's the reflex. So I'm not saying, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. There are times where you'd say, yes, there's a nuance in this. In fact, in Hebrew, lots and lots of times. And so where that's true and you can tell it, yes, you want to do that. But where you can see it's just a synonym for a synonym's sake. Mm. You don't want to do it. Or in Hebrew, where they're giving you like six times in a short passage the same word, they're making a point. Yeah. 
That's so you don't want to have five synonyms to go with the one yeah. original word. But I think if you don't know, my reflex would be to provide a synonym. Mm. Uh, then, then I think it's probably, so I think that's what it means. These, these two nuances we've been talking about, that's what it means to be true to the, to what the author was trying to convey. Um, a, a real example is Ecclesiastes, which is going to leave vanity over and over again. Same Hebrew word over and over and over and over again. I want you to use it. So anyway. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so I think most of us are uh, aware that when it comes to translating the Bible, in some way, ancient manuscripts from the original Greek and Hebrew would be involved in that. You know, we're getting, that's where we're getting the, these, the words of scripture that we're then rendering in English. What did it look like to use those manuscripts uh, or uh, to, to reference uh, that material in a context like the, the meetings, especially without the, the um, uh, I would assume that there wasn't quite as widespread digital access to those kinds of things as there might be today. We're starting to have digital access, but actually we, we benefit in so many different ways from prior work. So the, we started with the accepted standard scholarly edition of the Hebrew Bible the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia in 1967. So hundreds of years of hard work, uh, and then also the Nestle all in New Testament Greek, 27th and then 28th edition, so that we benefited from the work of people who had done text criticism and had given us this a v- reliable yeah. manuscript. And... Of course, that had changed somewhat since the time of the King James because the King James translators worked with the best manuscripts they knew and had, which is all anybody can do. We have several better manuscripts and know it now. Mm. So, for instance, just in an Old Testament example, it's a famous one that folks would know. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1948. Be hard to fault anybody yeah. really before about 1985 or so for not being able to have those, put them into play and use mm. them. So um, by now we have, we have it. And we also, that's the, the book experts were helping us with this, but yes, we still had to ask ourselves sometimes uh, what is the best Greek or Hebrew reading but again, you do have humility because, you know, there's um, been lots and lots of people work on this. And all we could ever say to somebody is we are doing the best we can with the best manuscripts that we know to exist this time. And I would hope someday somebody will discover, you know, I, Moses, decide. To, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so I, I think any any listener needs to know you have you have a very reliable Bible. There's. There are tons and tons of manuscripts that stand behind this, that this is not some, uh, it's not a lot of guesswork. Every now and then somebody will make, will sell a lot of books saying the opposite, Mm -hmm. but I just don't think it's uh, an accurate statement. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the KJV and uh, kind of some differences there. Um, A question we received from one listener in Philadelphia was, uh, why do some people say that the ESV stands in the tradition of the King James Version? Simple answer is because of what we've been talking about. It's, in, it's a formal equivalence translation. 
that tries to do the things we've already talked about. But also, uh, the King James um, was durable in English. It lasted. And so it, it wasn't very quirky. Mm. Didn't use a lot of slang, colloquialism, and so forth. I think we read it today, and it feels very foreign. It feels very uh, not like normal English. But w- how would you respond to that? I would say that's true now. Some people say it's great because it gives an otherness to the Bible. Um, I'm not so convinced of that approach. Yeah. And some people talk about uh, the dignity and grandeur and that sort of thing. People didn't think so when it was printed. In fact, they said the opposite. Mm. They thought it was um, not doing that. Yeah. So I don't know about all that. I, I've often thought that beauty and grandeur is in the eye of the beholder or the hearer. But what I say, this was durable language. Now, in part because people read the Bible and that helped the language. Yeah, right. It's like Luther's Bible, in effect, uh, people still say, um, helped invent modern German. So it's a both and. But the King James, the fact that by the 20th century, the new King James comes out, removes a lot of the rough words, changes these, nows, that sort of thing. And it's understandable to people. Shows it's durable. Mm. So that that's what we want. I mean, uh, and it's durable across English dialects. So that if I go to Glasgow, Scotland, I could barely understand people speaking English. Same thing in Singapore or in India because of my ear and because of the way I spoke it. But when we all had newspapers... And now websites, I I understand what each of those different mm. places have because we have this durable language that when we see it and read it, we understand it. So that's the thing that I think the King James tradition gives us mm. uh, more than strange words uh, and so forth. But the King James is a is a very good translation of its from its time period. Yeah. So it's not when we say that the ESV stands in the the legacy of the King James, it's not that there's some direct you started with the King James version and it sort of was just revised into the ESV. No, because because again, uh, what you'll find is where we think the King James gave a good translation. We're satisfied with a good translation. It's it's like saying you look like your grandfather. Well, I, I take it as a compliment anymore, um, but it's the fact that it's it's come across through the years. So, no, if if they're worried that what we're trying to do is sound strange or have this Bible ease, that's that is not what's in intended at all. It's against durability, understandability, language across uh, several cultures. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, in 1881 and 1885, when the revised version was made in England, revising the King James, when they found an, a, a, a word that was in the King James that was no longer viable, it was too old, they sought purposefully another word from the time period of the King James Version to insert that that was still understandable. 
no, we're not trying to do that sort of thing. Yeah. We're not trying to find old, strange words that you might still recognize. Now, on that subject, somebody says, well, don't you still have some strange sounding words? Like sojourner, what is that? Mm. Well, the problem is any other, it's, it's, a, it's a term that fits the ancient Near Eastern context and, a, and an English dictionary will help you. But it's not exactly an immigrant, an alien resident, and so yeah. forth. It's it's a different sort of it thing. It's still the best English word. Yeah, you, you're you're still you're still stuck, so to speak, <clears throat> with with it. But you're you're trying to you're trying to relate what was going on. It is an old English word, uh, but it's still one that at least does not mislead and tries to be precise. Mm, yeah. Did you receive comments from scholars who weren't involved in the translation? We we got good comments from scholars and pastors and good lay readers. And then we got, how do I describe some of the other ones? Um, less helpful comments? Less helpful, less informed, yes. Mm. But yes, it, again, with the with the beauty of electronic mail of email, yeah, uh, you, you could hear from nearly anybody under any conditions. So, so would you come to each of these meetings sort of with a list of potential changes to discuss and, and, and then was there a voting process to decide? Same as when we made the original hmm. original uh, text. Um, and again, there's a lot of work done by the Crossway staff. See, I don't want to leave them out. All there are hundreds and hundreds of hours that are done by the staff to get ready for these meetings. And, you know, fielding of questions here and then consulting with the team to find out what what we need to discuss but the idea at, at the beginning was let, let's fix um things we we should have done first time by the second meeting five years on we were now trying to hone in on any specialty on, on specialty items that might be difficult plus uh as the preface to the sv shows we were we were dealing with the issue of slave servants and so forth trying to trying to get that right and the preface shows that and the last time we were really trying to as the committee we did not expect and it would have been correct that we could have met in another five years there were two reasons um um jim jim packer was about to die and covid mm. <laughs> we wouldn't have met in five years yeah so we were trying to trying to uh do any kind of really necessary work, but but not do full blown revision, as in rethink the whole thing, go back and do everything over. Yeah, would you say that the default, uh, the default disposition uh, of the TOC for those revisions is kind of to do as little as possible? Yes, that that's the goal. The the problem with a translator, with a translation team, is that if they see something they can fix, <laughs> uh, they they want to. Yeah. So yeah, you do have to have a pretty smaller small set of things you want to get done, because after a while, you start finding if I change this again, I'm starting to unravel other things, and so really you have to. You have to be careful about why you're there, and I think I think we were pretty careful. Yeah, 
that you mentioned just kind of the the fun involved in being uh, together as a group and talking about scripture and kind of digging in on the the weeds of things did, did that dynamic kind of come back in these follow-up meetings did you feel like you everyone sort of got back into uh into this even you know almost two decades on yes i think particularly <clears throat> the first the first two first two meetings um the last meeting that we had in 2015, we did not expect to see each other all again. So part of it was reunion and homecoming. Mm. But then we settled in, we settled in as pretty hard work. So I would say that time it took us a couple of days, but that's just part of getting back in. And then, then you remembered, and, and the, the camaraderie was great. I want to say this. Every day we began with, with prayer and devotion. And we ended every day with prayer. Um, and by devotion, I mean Bible reading and prayer requests and that sort of thing. Um, and so I'll give you two examples because you, you, you've asked me before, um, when we were planning to meet some memorable moments on daily devotion, I remember in one meeting, Gordon Wyndham gave a devotion on the poor in the Bible and God's compassion and our need for compassion for the poor, for generosity. And it was very much in his heart, very much a great reminder to us. That was one day. When uh, Bob Mounts was on the committee, he was the oldest member. He was a World War II fighter pilot and this sort of New Testament scholar. He was, um, I think, a little older than Jim Packer even. And one day, he, I guess he thought maybe we had been a little too high-minded or gotten a little up abstract enough to clouds <laughs> the day before. I don't know. But he did his devotion, and he went over to Upright Piano that was in this room in Tyndall House. In Cambridge, England. In Cambridge, England, where me and and he, I don't know what upright piano was doing in this scholar's room, but there it was. And he went over and he pounded out the lettuce and singing, "Oh Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do?" <laughs> and just an old gospel uh-huh. thing to get us back to remembering this is about people's souls. And again, I don't know if it's critical or not. He just wanted to sing a song, but that's the way I, that's yeah. the way I remember it. And then uh, the last um, meeting we had in 2015, um, Lane asked Jim Packer to close in prayer. And I wish that every crossway and other person who reads the ESV could hear the prayer. Um, Jim prayed, Lord, you you know, we, we love you. We love your word. And we long that your word will be up and running throughout the world, saving souls, building Christians. And he just went on like this. Hmm. And we just celebrated his 89th birthday. And now he's with God. But I just thought, yeah, see, that's the, I don't apologize for the level of the scholarly work that we had to do, but we never lost contact with the fact that our relationship with God and to all God's people, including the poor, and that God's word would be up and running above all else. Mm. So those are good memories that I just wanted to say were, were, were 
part of the work. It was not a scholarship versus devotion yeah, yeah. kind of it. We often stopped to pray over hard issues. So I want to turn to some specific questions that we received, uh, many of which relate to particular passages of scripture and decisions that were made and how to how to render different things. And one question that we we received a lot of uh, quite a few times relates to the covenant name of God that he gives in the Old Testament. So uh, one listener from Barnevald in the Netherlands asked, why does the ESV translate the Hebrew word Yahweh as the Lord and not simply as Yahweh? Well, I'm in sympathy with the with the writer, and when I write Bible commentary, I will also I often do that. However, in a Bible translation, um, if you did that, then I think you would be obligated to do Elohim everywhere it is, which is standard name. And then all the other, there are about eight other names in the Old Testament you'd be you'd be obligated to do there, which I think in many cases would simply confuse mm. readers. Uh, I know it's a bit of an obligation to know that those that uh, capitalized Lord is not, but we're trying to show that every time. Also, I would say it is one time where I would worry a little bit about audience. It's offensive to Jewish readers. Mm to say the divine name also we're not exactly sure given the vowel points that it, it should be that it is yahweh mm. that's our best understanding so i think there's a lot more than it's a slam dunk we know this is how to pronounce it we know this is where it is and so forth so i think it's, I think it's a good question and some translations have tried it i remember one and they backed off of it huh. because of the the usage didn't work yeah isn't it also the case that in the septuagint the greek translation of the old testament that, that that often uses the Lord. Yeah, for very reason I'm saying it, it was they felt it was more respectful, hmm. and um, also they didn't they did not have the the, the translation. I yeah. mean, I mean the, the 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 pronunciation. Yeah. So I think again we're trying to show respect without becoming odd or offensive. And, but but again, I think it's a judgment call. I don't I don't condemn other translations for for trying. Mm, yeah. Uh, so uh, issues related to gender and um, gender inclusivity are prominent in our public discourse today, uh, both within the broader culture, but then uh, also within the church. And um, the translation oversight committee undoubtedly had to think through some of those issues, especially related to gendered language. Uh, as they worked on the ESV. So I guess as a first question on this point, can you summarize how the the committee and the translators as a whole thought about the use of gendered language? Yes, I, I do believe uh, that the, the preface, if you have an ESV Bible, the preface is pretty, pretty clear and accurate to the way that we dealt with that, which was um, if we could tell that the language was inclusive. We did not try to make it masculine, as, for instance, as I recall, the RSV often did. So some people would say, well, you've taken a few masculine ones out. That's because we thought that the words had no particular masculine impact or were intended to be 
broader to include all all people. Mm. Um, but where you know a component like each for man uh, was there, or it had a had a component we we tried to bring that across because we thought that's what the text did, and we were trying to tell the truth about what the text did. Um, so same thing with often people ask about brothers and sisters and the, yeah. the note because the word is just a Delphoi, which is brothers. And sometimes it's clear by context. That means the brothers of Jesus or, you know, so forth. Um, but it seems to be a phrase in some instances where it includes, um, brothers and sisters, men and women, boys and girls. So the whole bunch. Yeah. But in Greek, you only have this one word. It's the same word being used. So we're trying to trying to trying to stick by the principle, but also to show by the note that we had a decision to make. Yeah. And that this isn't, you know, ninety nine to one percent. That this is this was a decision that we had to make. And we want to pass that on to the reader that we had that decision to make. We've made this decision. We're not going to hide it from you. Yeah. You're trying to show your work in that footnote. Trying to be transparent, yes, to, to your earlier statement. Mm. That's that's helpful. And we also know these these things are on a moving target so that uh, I heard a person talking about a translation of Genesis uh, 2, I guess it'd be 23 to 25, where it says that a man shall leave his mother and father and his wife well, because of current gender concern, they want to just put a person shall leave. Hmm. And a person. And I even noticed that uh, last night I saw that um, in language about uh, birth, moving from when, if, if a woman has a baby, if a person has a baby. Hmm. Uh, so these things are going to ebb and flow and change to me the i don't want to hide f from any skeptical reader or anybody who's I, I want them to see the truth i want them to see what the text actually says yeah so how would you think then about maybe that example of from genesis of a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife um because we obviously take that verse and we apply that to women leaving <laughs> their parents and clinging sure. to her husband uh, so why, why in that case, though, would you say it's important to preserve the specificity of those uh, two terms? Well, see, I, I would say because that's, that's the original, that's the original order of things. And I would want any reader to know they could agree or disagree with that order of things. But that the text is specific about male and female family there being the bedrock and their mother and their father hmm. and so you can disagree with that you can say that's a trajectory that which now we know would include a man and a man or a woman and a woman but that's not what that text says hmm. and so um i i would not want to hide from an honest reader uh, I don't ever want the reader to say, when will you start telling us the truth? What else have you hidden from us to get us to come over to your side? Mm. <laughs> uh, 
or why have you hidden it that way when we know it's mad? So I think we, we put what's there. Um, and I, I think it's the honest, it's the most honest thing to do. And you will offend somebody by doing it one way or the other. Mm, yeah. <laughs> There's no non-offensive way to do it. Yeah. Uh, so another question that many listeners had relates to divine pronouns. Yeah. Uh, for example, someone from Northern Ireland asks, why are the initial letters in pronouns related to the Godhead in lowercase in the ESV rather than in uppercase? Well, I appreciate their respect for God because that's what the question comes from. This yeah. is a deep, is a deep reverence for God. First of all, the, the, they were there were no capitals in the original languages in either Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Um, they're not. It's not done that way in the King James, Tyndall, or in in this tradition. And I want to say one other thing because I've I've been editing a book that does it that way. It uses the capitals. Uh, it's hard on my eye. I keep thinking I have a new sentence. Mm. So there's this practical aspect to it that I think has been known for 500 years, but I, I want people to know we are not trying to downgrade God. Yeah. It's the sense at which this is the translation uh, tradition we're in. These are the practical considerations. And again, I don't condemn uh, a, uh, another version for saying, let's try that. Let's, let's do that. But I, I don't believe that respect for God is created or knocked out by capitalizing he or him mm-hmm. or not. And that certainly, there was no yeah, motivation there beyond. No, we didn't, we didn't look at that and say, oh gosh, that's, that's just over the top. That's too much respect for God. <laughs> this really had to do with, with usage. And, and again, I think whether you can read it in public or not. Yeah. Yeah. So we received a lot of questions related to uh, how the theological convictions of the translation team may or may not have impacted the work itself. And we've hit on this a little bit. We've talked about the variety of, um, of educational and expertise backgrounds and how that was important. Uh, but theology in particular is, is one of those things that's hard to disentangle from um, all of our lives, but in particular translation work. So if, I guess, um, speak to that. Were there any doctoral commitments that you think were actually very important and did have a material impact on the translation work? Yes, I think the first thing um, is talk about what unified is. Um, one unifying factor was our commitment to um, Jesus Christ, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our belief in and our commitment to to Him. Um, second unifying factor was we we believed the scriptures were true and without error. That if if two of us disagreed on what the text says, one of us could be one or both of us could be wrong. The text was going the text would be right. There was a truth to what the text. Yeah, says. we the text was the text was a, we were we were in service of the text. Now, so that I think it's it's the Baptist faith message says the Bible is the true center of Christian union. So with Jesus, we don't know Jesus very much without without the Bible. So there is a sense in which that held us together. Hopefully love of neighbor also held us somewhat together. Mm-hmm. But also let me say it's positive. So some of these some of these theological convictions you do want to to hold you in. Um, 
whether it's the Trinity or salvation, Christ alone, and so forth. Well, however, we all translators should know that they're influenced by their theology. They've made some studied decisions. But you need to be aware of that so that you don't read it into your Translation. Yeah. So I think being careful, but uh, I mean, I'm certain that at some point I was too affected uh. by my beliefs. And I hope that at each time I was voted down. Mm. So you, you would say there was a, a widespread, though, recognition that you wanted to guard against being too overly influenced by your particular theological yeah, tradition. Yes, and that's another time where I want to say, and I, I don't know, I don't know what will happen to the word evangelical or to to evangelicalism. But this committee was were was representative of the post-World War II consistence amongst Bible-believing Christians of a variety of denominations. So that we knew that we were working together, believing a broad spectrum of common beliefs. So that, uh, yes, uh, do we accept as Tyndall and others baptism? Just use the word. That's just that's just transliteration of a Greek word. Um, so the Baptists weren't going to argue for immersion, for instance, because of this this mm. group, and in part because they didn't know where that's that makes it work. But if, if you wanted as a Baptist really to get your, your oar in the water there, boy, you, you just argue for immersion, come yeah. what may. What are some of the other examples of theological positions that would not have had an impact on the translation work? So, you, you know, maybe an understanding of baptism, specific mode and, and uh, way of doing baptism would be one example of that. Any others that come to mind? view of the Lord's Supper, so, you know, sacraments or ordinances, however you call them. Mm. Um, I think those were issues that were, that we knew that, that the scripture wasn't misleading anyone, but we had different views. Mm. Um, the security of the believer who's truly in Christ. Um, I think we're very careful about things, you know, like, you know, uh, to protect the atonement of, of Jesus Christ uh, for us. But I think, again, they, they let things like church, again, that goes clear back to Tyndall and the Geneva Bible. Does it mean congregation? Yes, but even then you're not, you're not necessarily home and dry to know what sort of gathering we're talking about. So to go more particularly, say, well, if I interpret it, that might be what I do, but I can't. I can't say the text solves that problem. Mm. So I leave it like this. So I think there were some things. If you want to say, I don't want to say they were off limits, but they were understood that as as in this again post World War II evangelical uh, consensus, we'd say we know we don't agree on that, and so we're. But this word is fine. Mm. Yeah, it's not misleading. It's not begging the question. It is viable translation. Yeah, yeah. So a listener from Brazil asks: Is the ESV 
uh, suitable for young people from other countries who want to read the Bible in English? I think that question kind of gets at something you said right at the beginning of our conversation about uh, that there was this early on a global vision for the ESV. Let's yeah. speak to that a little bit. Unpack that uh, vision that I think still persists today. Yeah, I think the, again, the durable English that could be read in any, on any website, in any, in any newspaper, in any mass media kind of way um, is, is what we're aiming at. Um, we're not going to treat, I, I would say, you know, you're talking about students. Is that what they say? Young people, high school, mm. college students. Um, we treat that with respect. We don't, we don't dumb it down. We don't act like you can't read, that you don't have a dictionary or that you don't have capability. Mm. We do leave some things to you to think. And so um, I, I think we treat the reader with respect. And if you're, an un, if you're not a believer, I would say to you, we treat you with enough respect to try to give you what's there without trying to figure out how to win you over. Mm. I hope we'll win you over, or, or the Holy Spirit has to win you over in any case. So, yes, I think because of the—see, I would say because we're not just trying to write for uh, an American culture at this point in time, but instead the durable thing with the, the varieties of English, uh, now, you know, the, the ESV has been published in India and, and other kinds of—Singapore and other places where, where people can read it— um, if English is your second or third or fourth language, I can't comment on how hard or easy it is for you to read. <laughs> but yes, there's. We've made no attempt or felt the need to to figure out how to make this at a at a eight year old's level so a college student be able to get it. Mm, yeah. I think it's harder to go the other way, to yeah. be frank. But I think I I would say after when by the time you can drive, you shouldn't have any trouble. You should be able to read this. Yeah. To speak to the pastor or church leader listening right now, uh, what would you say are the benefits of the ESV for preaching and teaching God's Word? In your study, if you can do Greek and Hebrew, it will seem reasonable to you. You won't say, what world are you? <laughs> I don't think you will. Um, if you can't, we're trying to keep you close to the text. So I, I heard a man preaching one time in, in Scotland, and I knew he did not know any Greek. And he was preaching from the New Testament, and I, and I won't say the translation he was using, but it, was, it had taken the transitions out. He was trying to preach the text, but he didn't have the ands. It didn't have the therefores. It didn't have the becauses. Like the it logic of the passage. The logic of the passage was lost to him. And we hope that, that we hope that we'll minimize that, so that you can trust that um, you're you're following along pretty well, and that the notes, that the, the text critical notes will or the footnotes will help you know where we had to make decision. Uh, and so I think it really also there are lots of people now who've been serial who only have one semester of Greek or Hebrew, which is. Uh, next to nothing. And so they need the help of a mm. formal equivalent translation more than they need another commentary. So yes, I think we'll help you. And even if you want to do thematic preachings uh, rather than expository preaching, 
uh, I think the fact that it keeps the keywords going throughout the Bible will help you do that. Mm. Yeah, you see, you see Paul reference righteousness here, and uh, you can kind of think connect that to when he says it somewhere else. Right. And I was I was reading uh, Psalm thirty-seven to forty-one this morning, and the theme of waiting on God. Wait. I mean, the the keywords appear over and over again. We're mm. not not trying to find synonyms or like be patient or whatever else. You got the words where you can now follow and trace the line of thought not only of the individual psalmist, but of whoever was putting these together so that they would have connections. Mm, yeah. Maybe I'll close then with a final question that I think will overlap some with what we've already talked about, but I wonder if it's nevertheless valuable. Uh, a listener in Oklahoma City asked a simple question. What makes the ESV a reliable translation? Well, I think because of what we've been saying, we start with the best work that's been done on the original languages. And we try to build on or to stand on the shoulders of these, of these great translators in this tradition that we're in. And we are trying as committed Christians, four committed Christians, to do good work in God's power. Um, God's word is is perfect. The translator isn't. Um, but I I'm not known as a gullible person. I'm not a particularly trusting man. Mm. So when I tell you that I think that every effort's been made to be reliable, to be accurate, to be truthful, to be Orthodox to to the important Christian doctrines with respect, not cowering, but with respect to the audience to tell you the truth, then I think um, you will you would have that in the ESV. Um, and I pray in a hundred years somebody'll do better work or next week do better work. I'm not against better work, but I think you can trust us. And I'm not saying that you can't trust anybody else. I'm just saying this is this has been our so heart. We've there hasn't been a political or monetary motivation behind this. So I'm just grateful that God's been able to use it. Mm. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time today to answer some of these questions that people have sent in and uh, share a little bit more about the history of the ESV. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. That was Paul House answering your questions about the ESV. To learn more about the English Standard Version, we invite you to visit esv.org translation. To find the ESV Bible edition that's right for you, visit crossway.org Bibles. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.